With the news media covering increasingly more news about data breaches and security and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor, we're here to help you mitigate potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello, and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the 53rd episode of my show. I use my show to help raise awareness of information security and privacy risks and issues. And I also provide worldwide listeners with practical tips and actions to help improve information security and to better protect privacy. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Google Play, Overcast, TuneIn, CastBox, Podtoppin, or whatever your favorite podcast or news app is. And also, please subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel website. And then you'll be notified just as soon as a new show is available. I sincerely appreciate all of you worldwide who tune in. And when I saw my listener statistics from last week, which show the general areas where my listeners are from through the online show site. They don't show where you're coming from from all those apps, but from the show site and how many are from those areas, I was really pleasantly surprised to see that I had picked up a few thousand uh, listeners in Richardson, Texas. And for those of you listening not familiar with Texas geography, Richardson is in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. So, wow, what's going on in Richardson? I love it. Well, whatever your reason, thank you so much for tuning in. I know I've had some secondary schools and universities who have put my show on their class syllabus. So, perhaps this is going on in Richardson? Well, Whatever the reason, I love it. And anyone from Richardson, drop me an email and fill me in. Now I'm motivated to visit Richardson again. It's been several years since I've been there, actually. So thank you very much for listening in Richardson. And, of course, thank you worldwide for all of you who listen. I truly do appreciate you. Any of you who are interested in being a sponsor or advertiser for my show, also just get in touch. And if you need help with information security or privacy let me know that too and keep all your feedback and questions coming in i'm getting some really great messages from all of you my february privacy professor tips message was published on january 30th did you get yours well if not go ahead and sign up for them i've been providing them free since 2007 in an effort to increase general awareness of information security and privacy issues, and also to provide a free awareness publication for organizations to send to their employees. You can sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com and submitting your email in the box in the upper right part of your screen. Now for my tip for the week. So on 
February 14th, I was watching the news and NBC News here in the U.S. did a report on hackers targeting medical records and also how so many of the victims have had to deal with the lingering problems for years and and actually sometimes for decades resulting from medical identity theft as well as other types of identity fraud resulting from these hacked records. Now, in many cases, you will not see indications of medical identity theft within your credit report. So many people think if you just look at your credit reports, you can find these different types of identity fraud, but it doesn't cover a lot of medical identity theft. So it makes it really important for you to periodically review your medical records and see if there are such things as treatments listed that you did not have, insurance claims that you did not make, incorrect addresses, changes in your name or other things, and any other information that does not relate to you. In the U.S., you have legal rights under HIPAA and some other state laws to request your medical records from healthcare providers and insurers with no limits on how many times you can do so. Also, check the medical and health records for your family members as well, especially children. Children are favorite targets. Cyber crooks package children's health records specifically and sell them on the dark web along with all the other medical records that they steal from the adults as well. My privacy and lawyer friends in other countries have told me in uh, the past that those in Canada, the EU, Australia, and other countries also have the right under their regulations, such as PIPETA in Canada and the GDPR in the EU, to access and review their medical records. You know, this could be an interesting show for some time in the near future, how you can get access to your own medical records to review and correct in various locations throughout the world. What do you think? Would you be interested in a show on this? Well, if so, let me know. So my tip for today is this. At least once a year, review the medical records your healthcare providers and health insurance companies have about you. Then follow up on information and activities shown that you or your family or children have on there that are inaccurate or that you were not involved with. So I have a verbal prelude to our topic today. And I've mentioned before that I started my IT career as a systems engineer for a large multinational corporation. When I started there, I built and maintained the change control system for a really complex environment containing all the software and applications the corporation used. Now, this change control system required new and changed software coding to be performed initially in a completely separate development region of the IBM 370 mainframe that was being used there at the time. 
After the coding was completed and initial programming team testing was done, the applications were then moved using my change control system to another separate testing or pilot type of region for more rigorous testing by a separate testing team that included not only IT staff, but also key stakeholder members of the business or corporate units where the applications were used. Now, this test or pilot region replicated the full production environment, but the actions performed there would not impact the live business activities. So impacts within the full environment could be found during this testing in the pilot region. Following thorough testing and making necessary corrections and more testing, when the applications were to the point that it was confirmed that they were working as necessary with no adverse impacts, Then they were submitted, again, through my change control system for approval to move to the live or production environment. And this followed a documented, structured process to ensure the changes would occur at a time when the fewest clients or end users were using the production environment and to prevent, as much as possible, any disruption to the live environment when the applications were updated. Now, while I was maintaining then this change control system, I also was put on the team to do live troubleshooting of the production system. And and at the time, they used a tool called Omegamon. Now, this tool had the ability to make changes directly within not only the production system, but also within the memory of the system where the applications were actively and actually running. So changes could be made to the data, to the code, anything that happened to be there at the moment in time that you were using this tool. And there was generally, through this tool, no log of the actual changes that were made. You know, when I started using this, it really concerned me greatly to have this capability because I knew that just one mistake could bring the entire multi-services, huge corporate business, depending on the network systems and applications, to a halt, which at that time, in 1988 to 1989, was completely running off of that IBM 370 mainframe. Now, the lead systems engineer for using Omegamon to troubleshoot the live problems was brilliant, fast, accurate, but one day she was using Omegamon and the entire business production system crashed. (laughs) Network accessibility was gone just like that, poof. Well, a mistaken keystroke was likely, but, you know, she wasn't sure what specifically caused the crash. Now, within five minutes, the CEO of this huge corporation was down in our area, standing right behind the Omegamon team leader's chair, breathing heavily, tapping his toe, while she you know, was trying to focus on quickly undoing whatever mistake was made. And it took her around 15 to 20 minutes, and then she found it, fixed it, and she later told me it found, felt like 
15 hours while she was, you know, trying to get this done, knowing someone was breathing down her neck. Well, even though there was a specific use for this tool to be used in a live environment, only in rare cases when necessary, this event emphasized uh, to me at the beginning of my career the importance of having structured software change controls and doing thorough testing to eliminate as much of the changes made in production and associated negative impacts of doing so as possible. Increasingly, over the past couple of decades, I've been really worried and increasingly worried to see organizations eliminating these types of change controls. And I'm seeing more and more of them making changes to their applications directly within the production environment, especially SaaS, software as a service types of businesses that are online and they're performing all these very important business activities through them with complex and multiple services offerings. Now, I've had many discussions, particularly with one business in particular, whose uh, business owner just refuses to implement change controls and instead makes changes directly within production and then relies on the most recent backups to restore the business when changes in production cause problems, which they do increasingly more often. But this is the way he's wanting to do it to save money. So, you know, I think this is not unique. I think many other businesses are doing this. So today is the first in a series of shows uh, that I'm going to be doing on systems and applications change control management. I think it's so important to talk about why this is a vital and necessary part of any software solution and in many ways more important now than it was back when I was responsible for change controls on that IBM 370 mainframe so long ago. Today, I am happy to welcome Dr. Dan Shoemaker, professor at the University of Detroit Mercy and also the author of 10 books on cybersecurity for publishers such as Taylor & Francis, Cengage, and McGraw-Hill. Dan is the graduate program director and the principal investigator for the Detroit Mercy NSA Center of Academic Excellence and formerly chair of workforce training and education for the Department of Homeland Security Software Assurance Initiative. Dan is also a contributor to the Department of Homeland Security Build Security In website. Dan has written hundreds of papers and articles on cybersecurity and software engineering topics in his 35-year career. Dan's been involved in the development of a number of national and international models for this field, and that includes the DHS CBK for Software Assurance and the NIST NICE NICE Workforce Framework, as well as the newer CSEC 2017 or 2017, which is the ACM sanctioned common body of knowledge for cybersecurity education. Dan, thank you so much for being my guest today. Welcome to my show. It's my pleasure. Happy to be here. Well, there's so much to talk about, and I was intrigued when um, I was getting in touch with you to invite you to my show about how um, you were 
at the Software Engineering Institute, the SEI, at Carnegie Mellon University. So what got you into change control management to begin with there? Well, I was original topic. Um, the first, I was literally there the day they said, let there be light at the place <laughs> in 87. Um, and what they were doing was basically trying to get people who were in the teaching business up to speed on what software engineering was. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't really a formal field at the time. And uh, so they did what they, what you normally do if you want to attract academics, which is put out free food. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, um, so at any rate, I, um, I went up there, I was a systems analyst and I came down from the top of the mountain. I was a software engineer, um, three days later. Um, and so it was kind of a revelation, but, um, one of the things they presented right off the bat was the, uh, body of knowledge or, you know, basically kind of what configuration management is all about and how to, how to do it. Um. There are a couple of IEEE standards out on that, too, and so I immediately read those, um, 828 and 1042, if any of your listeners are interested in kind of getting down to the nuts and bolts of the thing. Um, and I've been teaching it ever since, so that's that's my long, sad story. <laughs> well, it's a great story, and there's another great story that uh, you mentioned. You intrigued me when we were preparing for the show with your statement about change control management and the Vanguard rocket. So I've got to hear this. What is the Vanguard rocket story? It's a perfect illustration. Actually, your your uh, uh, intro is almost a perfect illustration of the Vanguard rocket story. Vanguard Rockets supposedly started uh, the whole push for configuration management. It, those of you who are not as old as I am probably don't remember it, but it was going to beat the Russians into space in 1957. And um, if you ever watch TV and you see a picture of a rocket exploding on the launch pad, that's the Vanguard usually. Um, they sort of, we all watched on TV, you know, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, lift off, and it got about three feet up in the air and blew up. Uh, and so they rolled out Vanguard 2, 6 feet, blew up. Vanguard 3, 9 feet, blew up. And they tweaked it, and I think it was about Vanguard 8. Took it out, launched it. It went up, deployed satellite, worked perfectly, and everybody looked at themselves and said, what do we do? <laughs> it, had been, it, it had been blowing up before then, and all yeah. of a sudden it worked perfectly. We must have made a tweak, but we have absolutely no idea what we did. And from that point on... They, uh, that was supposedly the reason why they put together that whole process of configuration management so they could figure it out. Well, so they never did they never did know then exactly what the changes were then, huh? It just kind no, of trial and error? Huh. No, well, I mean, that's the way we did it back there in the good old days was hit it with a wrench until it worked. But the problem is that if you wanted to duplicate it, you really didn't really know what you'd done. And yeah. so it's really kind of important with complex things to keep have some idea of kind of what changes you make when you make them in order to understand why things work and don't work. Oh, exactly. Well, and now things are even more complex. Well, not necessarily from a rocket, for sure, but, you know, with the new types of systems we have now and, and so many different systems communicating with each other, with third-party systems and so on. I mean, change control is so important what kind of IT components do change control management processes need uh, to be applied and to be effective? 
Well, I mean, it depends on how you scope. It's really resource driven. I mean, you really sort of put your finger on it. It's how much money you're willing to spend. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you know, if um, for for somebody like me, you're talking about software, and so software configuration management is just basically just keeping track of what you got in terms of your software inventory. But you know, it runs on hardware, and you know that can make a difference. And so it might be integrated up to the level of the system. Um, or even into the environment, you know. But, I mean, the idea basically is that uh, whatever it is, it's got to be tracked. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, basically that's, that's kind of the, the, the answer to the question is yes. You know, um, anything that you've got in terms of a part of your operation, it would really be helpful if you knew what it did. Uh, and, you know, that sort of stuff. And the only way you're going to be able to do that is kind of keep track of uh, – all the moving parts and kind of what, how they interact with each other. Mm-hmm. Well, then, so to keep track of those moving parts and how they interact, what would you say to our listeners that are the absolute necessary basic components or steps that should be part of, a, of an effective change control management procedure or program? Well, first of all, you got to know what you've got. And that's really where it goes off the rails because what that amounts to is going in and looking at your program inventory and kind of understanding, you know, and that really is down to the kind of the almost a line or the time analysis, um, you know, what at least, at, you know, at least at the module level, what you've got in terms of functionality. And, and so, you know, uh, the it's really hard to, to – to tell a CEO that he needs to spend money to kind of inventory all the old stuff he's got. But, you know, a lot of these big companies, I mean, I'm in Detroit, Ford, GM, places like that are sitting on more legacy code than, uh, and all of that stuff is easily exploitable because we wrote it back in the 80s, you know, or 90s. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, in simple terms, they don't have a clue. I mean, I'm not just talking about Ford, I'm talking about everybody. I don't mm-hmm. think any large corporation has a clue to what they've got um, out there in terms of, of actual assets. And those assets could be just as malicious as a diamondback rattlesnake. And they wouldn't have the slightest idea that they had them because they hadn't taken the time to actually go into them and find out what they got. And so first step in the, the, the term is identification. Built into every model, risk control model out there. But first thing you got to do is ID your stuff or inventory your stuff and categorize it into, you know, kind of what what sort of categories you want to sort of put them into. Um, that's, um, once you've done that, you can formulate baselines. And baselines are nothing more than uh, aggregate of, you know, kind of, of, of items that compose a thing. And so if you've got a software program, you know, one of the modules, how they interact, that sort of stuff is all written down somewhere. So later on, if you want to go in and crack it open and kind of make changes, which you then will document, you have, you have a, uh, you know, you, you actually have, have a record of what you had and you now know what you changed it to, uh, sort of reminiscent of the Vanguard rocket. Um, and basically that's the next step in the process is to keep documentation of the change, uh, and, you know, both in terms of what you got and then also what you're changing it to. They call them, uh, basically they have, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, <laughs> Baseline is basically kept in, in, you know, what you presently have and then past baselines. One of the advantages of having, a, you know, old baselines is 
you can also do trend analysis in them, get some mm-hmm. idea what your, you know, security issues might be as time goes by. You know, if you made a bunch of changes in a certain module, that ought to tell you, tip you off about what you might be doing wrong when you were putting the module together or when you're using it. Oh, yes. And that that history is so important. But, you know, from my experience as starting out, you know, as a systems engineer and and doing all this, I know that the people that I worked with, most of them, not all of them, but most of them, documentation was their least favorite part of the job. (laughs) And so, you know, that was always, oh, we'll get to that later. And then later never came. And then all of a sudden, there's no way to tell what actually was changed or, um, you know, what would be important for other people to know if something happened and you weren't there to uh, fix any subsequent problems down the road? Yeah, you know, if, if your system programmer gets hit by a bus, you really got a problem um, if he's got the whole system in his head. Um, but I mean, from an explo- exploitation standpoint, which is not really where we got into that in the first place. We got into it in the first place just because we wanted to make quality software, but or systems. Mm-hmm. But you know, now that we've moved into the 21st century, the um, if if I'm going to exploit something, I'm going to exploit a defect. Um, if you've got defects in your code uh, that you don't know about, you know, zero day vulnerabilities in your code, um, I'm you know, as a hacker, would really like to know about that because you know, I really would like to have uh, access to your uh, financials or whatever it is I want to get. Um, and, you know, the only way you can basically keep track of that is if you document it, but documentation isn't really cool, and so nobody does it, um, which is the reason why I think the current standing right now at cybercrime is uh, about $3 trillion, $3 trillion a year cost, uh, and the projections, IBM's projections on it are up to, to uh, 6 to $8 billion, trillion, I mean, sorry, trillion is such mm-hmm. a nice word yeah uh, by uh 2020 and so you know the bottom line basically is you can pay me now or pay me later um i'm on the security side and so i you know i i don't have a lot of sympathy with people that are more or less willing to expose their throat well yeah to take that unnecessary risk i mean like you said do you want to save a few thousand, hundred thousand dollars now, or do you want to pay a few trillion dollars <laughs> later? I mean, it seems like the balance there would be pretty clear to see what your choice would be. Um, right now, though, we're coming up on a break. So what I want to do, Dan, is when we come back, I want to continue our conversation But right now, it is time for a quick break to hear from our valued sponsors that I do appreciate so much. I'm speaking today with Dr. Dan Shoemaker from the University of Detroit Mercy about the importance of systems and applications change controls. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the Privacy Professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show as well as show topic suggestions using my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com and also through my privacyguidance.com website. Please stay with us. We'll be right back after these important messages from my sponsors. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy, and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyprofessor.org. Rebecca Harold and Associates offers information security products, privacy, and compliance tools, education, and consulting. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages. She has published since 2007. Visit privacyprofessor.org for help and answers to your questions. Have you heard about Symbus360.com? The Symbus system includes information security, privacy, and compliance management, policies, procedures, and forms, third-party and vendor management, training and awareness, breach response and management, employee tasks and assets management, and risk management automation. Symbus also offers Alien Vault Unified IT Security Management at reduced pricing and also cyber liability insurance with limits up to $25 million. You need to find out more about the Symbus system. Visit Symbus360.com. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on the Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, and I'm speaking today with Dr. Dan Shoemaker from the University of Detroit Mercy about the importance of systems and applications change controls. So I want to pick up where we left off uh, before the break. So, Dan, you know, there's so many SaaS business leaders. And again, that's software as a service, online types of services and, and other types of businesses. Um, who try to claim that, you know, these online services as well as the SaaS services that are typically very complex and oftentimes they have application interfaces to yet other businesses and other services, oftentimes I'm, I'm hearing them claim that they do not need to use a test region or server to create new applications uh, for their their systems or to make software changes in their applications that oftentimes I hear them say, well, we're an agile programming uh, shop, so we don't need to do anything in a test environment separate from production. So if a business owner, such as for a SaaS service or other type of uh, service, insisted on making code changes directly within the production environment, what would you say to him or her to convince them that change control management controls were necessary or maybe to explain when those 
controls were necessary? Hmm. Um, what you're saying basically is that these folks like playing with fire. Uh, and no, I'm sorry. They like playing with fire in the middle of a dynamite factory. <laughs> uh, the, they, by definition, what they're uh, working with is both dynamic and highly complex, mm-hmm. uh, which means it's got a lot of moving parts. And um, in order to be agile, I guess, which is another word for impatient, maybe, or at least save money, um, what they want to do is start tinkering with all the, uh, a few of the moving parts under the assumption that nothing else is going to happen or nothing's going to change or nothing's going to be affected um, on kind of a life or death thing. So if they do manage to blow up a part uh, and the whole system comes down on top of them, or even worse, they make a change that's absolutely malicious uh, and they really don't know it, um, that that's a good thing. Um, I, from my standpoint, if you don't, if you change it, you'd better test it. Um, if you want to, you know, I mean, the fact that it's integrated already is great, you know, but, uh, the, the bottom line basically is that it's really complex and, you know, um, if you don't take the time to kind of study the change that you made or proposing to make and then make the change, it's, you know, it's funny. I've got a kid who likes to, uh, work on around the house, does the same sort of thing, you know, just starts hammering. And, and sawing and stuff and you know and I mean the the number of electrocutions I witnessed have been um, and, and I mean you know it's it makes no sense to to um, for the sake of hurrying up uh, or whatever the right word is take the chance of putting in some kind of mal malicious defect not malicious some sort of exploitable defect uh, that that you know basically could bring the business down. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know what to say beyond that because uh, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to do it any other way except carefully. Well, and to your point about testing too, you know, that's something that I see way too often as well is that they're like, oh, well, I only want to make this one change. So I want to make this change to allow for this one specific activity to happen and you know you pointed out that you got to study a change an intended change before making it to determine the impacts right but instead I'm seeing so many of the the businesses just say well we only want to do this one little change and then their testing is only to see if that specific change has the desired result and they don't do testing beyond that to see all the other potential impacts that occurred as a result of that change, kind of like back in my early beginning days when that was always, you know, an important part to look not only at the results, but also what were the in- impacts within the environment. I mean, I don't know, Do you, what do you think about that as far as testing goes? Do you see that too, uh, people testing just to see that if the intended impact was done and they don't go beyond that? Or what are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, in most cases, they, they basically, if it flies, then it must be okay. Um, you know, they sort of run mm-hmm. up a flagpole, it flaps. Well, that's good. It's a flag now. But, I mean, the bottom line, basically, from my standpoint is, if you look at the top two um, in terms of the common vulnerability uh Enumeration, I think it's something. But at any rate, top two in the SANS hit list um, mm-hmm. are um, 
injection flaws, um, sequel injection and command injection. And um, by what you're talking about specifically causes that or create, opens you up the possibility of that happening. Um, and so, you know, how do you fix it? Well, obviously you test it because the whole idea is to make sure your return values aren't something going to be something really, really nasty. Um, and, you know, if you just fix it, um, well, you don't have any opportunity to see kind of what you may be opening yourself up to in terms of potential injection type attacks. Yeah, and then uh, you're kind of just wide open for bad things to happen at some point down the road when somebody happens to do, you know, hit the right keystroke or a malicious actor comes into the environment. Well, look, um, at, all, look at all the, um, you know, the kind of big hit the news big time uh, exploits. Of, uh, and, you know, those are all, almost every one of them is just basically a, a, a program flaw or a mm-hmm. system flaw uh, that was exploited. And, you know, then you got to go out and say, well, the, like the Equifax people, oh, yeah, well, we lost pretty much, you know, uh, all I don't know how many million uh, Social Security numbers. Sorry about that. Uh, and so, you know, it's from a social responsibility standpoint that, that there's like, I don't notice Equifax getting much more than a slap on a wrist as a result of it. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah, they had their excuses, but what it amounted to is we didn't manage it very well. Right, right. And who knows how long, you know, data was uh, being exfiltrated through the exploit before they even found out about it. So uh, those flaws can be taken advantage of by the malicious actors for quite a while. Right. I mean, I mean I'm, I'm not saying that it was caused specifically by that particular thing we're discussing. Mm-hmm. The bond line basically is given the capability of, of, the, of the black hat community. Uh, I would almost not do anything if I wouldn't if I didn't very carefully check, you know, make a list and check it twice um, because it will get exploited if they feel like it. Right, right. Well, how does the role you mentioned before the break about documenting and knowing your inventory of you know, the various information assets. And I think some of our listeners might think, well, if you're doing change control, why do you need this inventory of your information assets and systems configuration? Um, Maybe you can provide, you know, uh, some insight into how knowing about all of those uh, other assets and configurations, how does that relate to change control for those who are trying to put together an effective change control management system? It's a good question. Um, there's sort of preconditions to have even ha- having any form of change control, which is basically you know what you've got or what you're changing. Um, and, you know, that's the part where you get into the inventory. Um, and, I mean, just sort of view it from a code perspective. You know, it's not just one giant block of code. It's a bunch of different interacting modules, and those modules do things and kind of interact with each other. Um, And so, you know, it's very helpful to have some idea of what those modules are and how they interact, Um, particularly if you're going to get around to change them because, you know, you may make an unintended change somewhere that you didn't know about. I mean, anybody who's ever programmed knows about that. You you write, Mm -hmm. make make a simple change in the program, and all of a sudden everything goes away somewhere else because there was a go-to or a call or a loop, you know, um, that you didn't, you weren't aware of or you didn't know that, you know, that uh, you, when you made the change, you didn't know it affected that. 
And so, you know, the bottom line basically is you got to know the lay of the land. And that's what the inventorying piece is all about. But there's another issue, which is we buy all of our stuff now. I mean, I don't know. They may write code somewhere in the United States, but most of it, I think, is written in India. Um, and, you know, when you're talking about COTS products, mm-hmm. uh, com- uh, com- uh, commercial off-the-shelf products, mm-hmm. uh, those are made in all sorts of different places by all sorts of different people and then integrated up into a product. Um, change control works there, too, because, again, back to knowing what you got. If you don't know what you've got when it's put together, somebody who somewhere along the line who just dis- could decide to subvert your, you know, organization or maybe the entire country by um, inserting something malicious that's just integrated into the product, or you know, without anybody paying attention to what it is or why it was, why it's there, um, and that's been a major issue in Congress. Um, it's called supply chain risk management or SCRIM. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, that basically just wants to make sure that we don't integrate Chinese malware into our defense systems because the program was done somewhere that we didn't know about. Um, and so the offshoring of, of uh, computer work to other places, um, you know, is another reason why you really need to know what you got. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and not only knowing what you got, too, but... Um, for the inventory, but, you know, talking about knowing all of that and then related to making changes directly in production. I know back when I first started, you know, one of the things that um, we were always warned about was how if you're doing all these these ad hoc changes in production, you're creating spaghetti code. And yep. a lot of today's IT managers um, online services entrepreneurs, they they may not understand uh, how spaghetti code's created. In fact, most of them may not have even heard the term <laughs> spaghetti code. But could you c- describe what spaghetti code is and maybe the risk of this type of code in production? Well, I mean, it, it starts out, you go through a development process and you end up with, say, let's say the perfect piece of software. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. Which may even be worse because then people start to, you know, saying, "Wow, if you could just change it this way and this way, I'd be really happy, and I could use it better." And so you crack it open, you make a change, and then you crack it open, and make another change, and so on, and so on. If you don't, if that's not under careful control, the changes start ending up, you know, kind of getting on top of each other. And every time you make a change, you got to read the basically read the code to see what, you know, where the change goes. Um, and it's like. Well, I don't remember doing that. That's because somebody did else did it somewhere some other time. Uh, and so that adds the time it takes to read it. One of the things that that's been, there's sort of a, not sort of, there's a, the usefulness of software basically, you know, becomes, it becomes more and more expensive as time goes by just simply to maintain it because of spaghetti code. And that's because it just takes so much longer to read it and change it because it's now kind of tangled up. You know, the, all the stuff that used to be there in a really logical way has just been patched on now in different places. Um, and so one of the best arguments in the world for change control is that it pre- prevents spaghetti code and therefore holds the long-term maintenance costs of the thing down. Another way to view it is software doesn't, isn't, you know, it doesn't wear out. It's just, like you know, little electrons running through a, a silicon chip 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and so theoretically, if you have a piece of software, you ought to be able to use it forever. It won't, you know, it won't die on you. But the reason why people retire software products is because it's just gotten to a point where it just isn't worth trying to keep the thing running anymore because of spaghetti coat, you know, because it takes mm-hmm. so much longer to kind of take it apart. If they were a little bit more careful on the front end in terms of documenting it and m- m- kind of ma- maintaining the changes, you know, you know, in a logical way, then, uh, you know, long term, the payoff would be huge because they wouldn't be buying a new system in three years. They would be using the same system for the next 20. Yes. I mean, that is a great argument um, and example for how it can benefit the business. It can save money due to the fact that you aren't always having to keep making these changes and keeping having, you know, things go wrong. Um, I've had business owners also telling me that, uh, and and this I've heard a lot, and it's just frustrating. And I try to explain it. So, you know, I'd love to hear how you would explain this. They tell me, well, you know, we don't need change control processes because we make frequent backups. So, if something bad happens, we'll just restore the system. If something goes wrong with a change they made directly in their production code. And it's so frustrating to hear that because, you know, having a backup, having backups and a recovery plan is not the same as having a change control management plan. So, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Have you heard that from others too? Um, well, I mean, yes and no. The, the idea that they can always roll back uh, you know, if they make a change and it blows up on them, um, is kind of interesting. Uh, you know, it, um, it just the thought that um, you know that, that that they don't really have enough kind of interest in in doing it right in the first place um, mm-hmm. because they've always got that backup. They can always go back to, to I don't know 1999 or whatever it was they did the backup. But you know, the idea basically is that. Um, you know, if this is a discipline process, and they use that term a lot in software engineering, um, you know, they should be, um, it shouldn't be something where their main um, method of doing business is to just simply reload the backup um, if things don't work out for them and after they've made a change. But the other side of things is you, you make a change, you may not know what it's done to you. Um, and, you know, the, the uh, hacker community is very smart, and they're always looking. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they find a vulnerability, you know, zero day that you put in uh, on your last change, um, you know, you may not know that it's time to relaunch the backup, and, you know, until after they've come and gone and the vault's empty. So, you know, yeah. I mean, there's almost no excuse to do that. Um, it is... <laughs> Uh, I don't know. It's like, well, I guess I can crash my car because I got another one in the garage. It's yes. Not exactly good business, but, you know, what the heck? I'm just a computer guy. Well, it seems like it to me, it shows complete disregard for your clients who are using your system as well. I mean, if you care about having, you know, uptime as as much availability for your clients to use your system as possible it seems like you wouldn't want to just say oh, if it crashes that's fine we'll we'll take a half an hour or whatever an hour or more to reload the system and then you can start in again it seems like it's just a horrible horrible business plan uh, with regard to client and customer satisfaction actually what you just just described is the uh, process for back for disaster recovery mm-hmm uh, 
and uh, you know, and somehow it's like, well, my business plan is to is is to implement a disaster recovery plan if I have just in terms of my running systems, op, you know, kind of on operational systems. Yeah, that's kind of doesn't make much sense. No, no. Well, you know, talking about some of the vulnerabilities uh, and incidents that have happened, I love the examples you've given so far. Would you consider the Heartbleed vulnerability from a few years ago to have been caused at least in, in part by a flawed change control system or procedure? Well, I mean, I that was mainly caused by a lack of testing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Um, you know, it, I mean, it, it's a small part of change control, I suppose. Um, but I don't think that's, you know, that's one where they got caught. Um, the the fact that that's, you know, the, the fact that they don't test stuff when they reintegrate it is not necessarily, you know, an uncommon practice. Um, and so, you know, I would think that it, Heartbleed is an example, but there's a lot of other examples. I guess that's my only do you have any others that you want to provide, you know, for listeners, or is that, you know, just a general comment that there's a lot of others out there? Well, I mean, you can run down a list of things, the, the um, which I guess I probably don't want to take up your time, but I mean, the bottom, um, the I love you virus, mm-hmm. uh, that's a lovely example of the same cool. sort of thing, um, and you know, there's a bunch of others who, if I could think of them. I would, but you know, it, it's kind of at the stage in the in the interview. I'm my brain is only half. <laughs> okay, that's fine. I mean, so it, it, it's it's sort of doctrine that if you don't test it, you're likely going to have problem. I, that's that's sort of the easiest way to approach it, I guess. So let's talk about testing for a little bit then here, um, with regard to. Testing a lot of times, you know, I talked earlier about how sometimes or oftentimes now most of the programmers only test for the results and the outcome they were looking for, but they aren't testing for all the other potential impacts. So, what are the basics necessary for testing software prior to moving those updates into production? So you can help to ensure there's no vulnerabilities. I mean, certainly you're testing to make sure it does what it was intended. But what would you say are a few other things that uh, should be looked for after changes are made in order to include in your test plan? Well, I mean, assuming that it functions properly, you know, it runs the way you intended it to, the kind of the classic definition of why you test Um the other side of things is to make sure that it doesn't contain undocumented features, you know, little things that people have thrown in there. Uh, just, you know, don't thank me. Here's no additional cost. I'm having a couple of backdoors and a Trojan horse. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, you can really only get at that through static testing because that's not something where the test suite is going to be looking for things that aren't there. Uh, and there's other things like, you know, how much um, uh, dead code you got. Do you have any Easter eggs? You know, that sort of stuff in the code. Um, but all of that is static testing type, you know, is, is reading the code, not not running it on some bench somewhere. Um, you know, kind of, yep, yeah, input, same output, perfect, no problem. Um, which, you know, is is important part of the things, performance testing, but um, that's called black, black box testing for a reason. Um, mm-hmm. 
you know, I, with me, again, knowing kind of more about the hacker community than I like to talk about, um, you know, I would pretty much need to do the white box test to make sure that, you know, all that stuff, that's all the gears are turning the way I, I expect them to and hope to and don't see any extra gears in there that I didn't know about. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, we're already coming up to getting close to the end of our show here, but what would be a key point or two about systems and applications change control management and the associated security or privacy issues that you want listeners to take away from um, our show and our discussion today? Well, I mean, I thought about it a bit. And the thing that I think you really need to understand is that it's a process. It's not a bunch of unrelated acts, you know, and it really starts from the top. It's really more strategy at the top uh, than it is something that it starts in the machine room. Um, and so, you know, if you're going to do something in the way of change control or general security, uh, the idea basically is you got to plan and you got to plan it from the top and everybody's got to buy and everybody's going to have to follow the process. Um, the If you look at some of the stuff that's out there, you know, you can't get a system approved in the federal uh, space without uh, configuration management. It's part of the uh, uh, you know Federal Information Security Management Act it says you can't. Uh, and you know there are other um, what do you call it models of best practice out there. Uh, you know in the commercial universe that basically say do configuration management as part of security. But I mean the bottom line basically is it's a system and it's a process. It's not something ad hoc that you do individually and then move on to something else. Great. Well, thank you. I think that summarized uh, very nicely. Thank you so much for being my guest today, Dan. My pleasure. So today I've been speaking with Dr. Dan Shoemaker from the University of Detroit Mercy about the importance of systems and application change controls. Please send me feedback about this show. Would you like to hear more about this topic? I already mentioned that I'm going to do a few more on this topic. Um, do you have other topics to suggest I cover? Or do you have any other types of privacy issues that you think uh, should be addressed? Just let me know. Contact me at Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. And please tune in to the show each week. If you cannot make our scheduled live time, you will be able to listen to the recordings. And you can find recordings of all my past shows on iTunes, Mobile Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player FM, in addition to, of course, the Voice America Business Channel website. Also, contact me if you need help with information, security, privacy, and compliance uh, work, or need anyone to do keynotes for you. And, of course, you can always visit my YouTube channel, The Privacy Professor, to see some of my appearances here on the Iowa Live morning shows and see the topics that we discuss there, uh, usually every month. I urge you to notice and stay aware of information security and privacy issues as you go about your daily activities, go to your job and do your daily work, or encounter anything else involving your personal information and how it's secured and potentially used in ways that could impact your privacy. Until our next show, ask those you do business with and who you work for if they are doing all they can to secure the information you've entrusted to them. Be privacy aware in the week ahead. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. 
data security and privacy with the privacy professor can be heard live every tuesday at 2 p.m pacific time and 5 p.m eastern time on the voice america business channel until next week stay safe Thank you.